You guys can have a seat. Good morning, Waterford campus. It is, it is really cool to be here with you guys. I'm so excited. Uh, like Kaylee said, my name is Chad, and I am the student minister at the Lake Mary campus. Um, just to let you guys know a little bit more about me, uh, my wife Kara and I, we've been married for 12 years. We have a daughter named Kate. She's seven. She's also really excited to be here this morning. Um, we don't get out of the uh, Lake Mary campus very often. The last time that we were here was when we did the parent interest meetings for the DR uh, team that we have that goes with Children of the Nations to, to Barona every summer. And so it's been a while since we had been here. But when Kate heard that we were coming back this morning, she was really excited. And, and I asked her, well, why? Like, that's great. Why are you excited? And she's like, the people there were just really, really nice. So thank you, guys. If you serve in base camp, thank you uh, for loving on my kids so well. She was excited uh, to be here this morning. Um, also, uh, uh, in addition to what I do at Lake Mary, I also kind of run uh, and organize the camps that we do for Summit students. And so uh, if you are the parent of a middle or high school age student, I probably know you by name, but not by face. And so if you have a minute after service, I would love to meet you guys and, and connect some names with faces. I think when we're interacting online and things like that, it always makes it easier if I can uh, picture who that is. So I would love the opportunity to get to meet uh, you guys. Um, also, kind of in that capacity as, as heading up those trips and coordinating the things for them, I've gotten to know a number of uh, Waterford students over the last five years. And man, you guys have some really awesome young people. Like, they are engaged, they, they are kind, and, and they're considerate, and they're easygoing. It's, it's always really cool. I, um, I think you guys have done just an awesome job with, uh, with your young people. So way to go, guys. Good job. Um, you know, one of the best ways that I can think of to get to know someone is to share stories. And so uh, we're going to do that this morning. I'll go first. And also, don't worry, I'm not going to make you guys share stories. But um, I will ask you to ponder a question while I share a story from my life. Um, when was the last time, maybe when is any time, that you have been caught off guard, just like something it, it just absolutely out of the blue caught you off guard. You're going along, everything is normal, and then bam, something happens, catches you off guard. For me, the year was 2014. I uh, was a volunteer still in, in student ministry up at Lake Mary, and I was going on my first trip with our middle school students, which was exciting and also like, like a little nerve-wracking. I had never gone away to camp with, with middle school students before, and like this wasn't like camp like we go to Southwind and there are dorms and everything is like really nice. This was what we used to call dangerous and daring. We now call it Weekend of Valor, and it is a tent camping trip for our middle school guys. And so I had never gone away on a trip before, and I'm going away to camp in tents. Uh, and then to add to that, it started raining the day we're supposed to leave for camp. And I'm like, oh, well, like, are we not going to go? Like, do we postpone it? Like, what do we do? No, it turns out you go camping in tents in monsoons uh, as a way to, to, to work with middle schoolers. And so we got to camp, everything is soaking wet. We set up our tents and we realized like for prepping food, you really kind of need a cover over your head. Ideally, you want to keep your food prep area dry. And so we looked around at what gear we had. We had a big tarp, a tarp that was like 12 by 24 or something. And we had trees, 
So he said, okay, well, let's, let's make a tent. And so we did. We, we made this nice covered area, and we moved the tables under it so we could prep the food and, and, and all that. And we took this two-by-four that we were going to be using for a construction project the next day. We hoisted that up in the middle and kind of peaked the roof so the rainwater would run off. And it, it worked. It was great. We were super proud of ourselves. This was like, like engineering at its finest for, uh, for this group of guys. Uh, Saturday morning rolls around. It is still raining. In fact, that weekend, it would rain all the way up until the buses got there to take us home on Sunday. Very wet weekend. Uh, so Sunday morning rolls around. We're getting things started for real uh, at, at this particular camp. The way we do things is we ask some folks from Summit to come out and lead skills rotations. One of those rotations is a survival rotation that is led by none other than lead pastor John Parker because he is an outdoorsman extraordinaire. He shows up, he assesses the situation. We, we need that two by four for this other project, but also like gotta keep the roof peaked so that water runs off. Looks around, grabs what was like a folding machete kind of thing that had a blade on it this long, and he heads off to the tree line. He goes over there, he selects the perfect sapling, he saws it off, he carries it back, and you know he, he, he lines it up, he brings it under the tent, gets it in position, hoists it up, supports the roof, and all the weight comes off of that two by four. And so gravity does what gravity does, and it just goes, bam, just right into my forehead. Um, never saw it coming. Had no time to react, no time to move or bob or weave or get out of the way. Just like my first clue that a two by four was hitting me in the head was when it hit me in the head. And, and I was like stunned. I like staggered backwards and you know, like I could feel it in my neck. Like, oh, like if I had been a turtle, my head could go in. That would have been super helpful then. I'm not. Um, the, the two by four tried to do that, didn't work out so well. And John, I remember he, he turns around, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he looks at me, he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, happens all the time, no big deal. And I try to like shake it off and pretend that I'm not like wondering if I have a concussion and doing this mental self-check of like, can I remember my name and things like that. So as the day went on, like things were fine, you know, I, I got better, I took some Advil, that was, that was okay. And so about a month later, I was offered the job as student ministry coordinator at the Lake Mary campus, which is interesting. It's great. I, I was so excited to get that job and, and come to find out OJ, the, the campus pastor up at Lake Mary, had actually intended for me and John to get to know each other that day. He was lining it up as sort of this like pastoral meet cute for, for he and I to, to see, you know, like, does John like Chad? Does he think he'd be a good hire? And, and all of that. And so I've always wondered since then, like, was the two by four part of some sort of weird student ministry job interview? Or, or was it just happenstance? And, and, and OJ swears, he swears that it wasn't intentional, but to this day, I don't know if the two by four was a job interview thing or if they gave me the job because they hit me in the head with the two by four. I don't know that I'll ever really know. But life is like that sometimes, right? Like things come along and, and they just catch you out of the blue. And, and I think as, as we look at this, one of the places that happens most frequently is in conversations, in interactions with other people. I think the reason it happens there so often is because, let's be honest, we live our lives a little bit distracted most of the time. We're having conversations, we're not fully engaged, and then somebody says something that catches us off guard and we're, we're like, wait, what? 
And you know, maybe theoretically, hypothetically, that happens like when you're on vacation and you're at like a family friend's house and you're staying there and, and you know, you go in the bathroom and you're doing your nighttime routine, you're getting ready, you see toothpaste, toothbrush, you start brushing your teeth, you're having that, that conversation with your spouse, you're like, uh -huh. and then you know, she walks in and she's holding in her hands a toiletry bag and a toothbrush. And you look at her in the mirror and she looks at you and, and she says those four words that you never ever want to hear someone say, that's not your toothbrush. Hypothetically. What we're about to see is, is when that happens for Habakkuk, not the toothbrush thing, but that, that getting caught off guard thing. Habakkuk, he, he has this complaint. He looks at the world around him. He doesn't like the way things are going on, and he cries out to God about it, and God responds, but God's response isn't at all what Habakkuk was expecting. God catches him completely off guard. Before we dive fully into that, let's take a minute and talk a little bit about Habakkuk, because there are some really interesting things that you should know about him. So first of all, the question is, what do we know about Habakkuk? You know, except for the fact that his name sounds like the noise my dad makes when he's got something caught in his throat. <clears> throat> you know, Habakkuk. That, that, that sort of noise. I mean, honestly, we don't know much about Habakkuk. In fact, less is known about him than any other author in the entire Bible. Literally all that we know from the book that he wrote is that he identifies himself as a prophet in the first verse. That's it. One of the most interesting things about him, though, is just how different Habakkuk is than the other prophets that we'll be looking at in his series. See, of these 12 guys here, Habakkuk is the one that's least like the others. You know, that sesame strong, sesame seat, wow, sesame street, there we go, there's a T in there. Sesame street song that goes, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah, that's Habakkuk. Habakkuk is the one out of the 12 minor prophets who is least like the others. Your typical prophet is like God's spokesman. He, he takes a message that he hears from God and he distributes it to the people. Instead, with Habakkuk, what we see is a little bit different. We, we actually get this record of a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And Habakkuk, he, he, he cries out to God and God responds. And then he cries out about God's response and God responds again. And then Habakkuk writes this, this song to wrap up the book. In a lot of ways, Habakkuk actually has more in common with the book of Job and with the Psalms of Lament than he does with the other prophetic books. So, since Habakkuk decided not to give us anything in the way of background as far as what he's talking about, we've kind of got to piece that together from context. So we know from Habakkuk's complaint that the government is corrupt and that justice has been perverted, and, and there are references to the rise and the brutality of the Babylonians, and all of that suggests that he's writing in the latter part of the 7th century BC, most likely during the reign of the unrighteous king Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was actually Judah's last king. He ruled the southern kingdom of Judah from 609 BC until it was conquered by the Babylonians in 598 BC. Habakkuk's reason for crying out to God in the first place was this. He, he had lived through the reign of Jehoiakim's father, King Josiah. Josiah was a good and righteous king. He restored the temple. He had, he had the scriptures read aloud to the people. He called them to repentance. He was a good king. On the other hand, Jehoiakim did none of that, had no room for any of that. And when Habakkuk saw how far the royal apple had fallen from the tree, 
He couldn't reconcile that. How is this good and righteous and just God allowing someone who is so unjust, so unrighteous, to rule over his people? So he cries out to God. God responds to Habakkuk that he sees what's going on. He has a plan. His plan is the Babylonian Empire coming to take care of it. And Habakkuk's like, wait, wait, what? That can't be right. God, don't you realize the Babylonians are way, way worse than this guy? He's caught completely off guard. He couldn't reconcile how a good and just God would allow Jehoiakim to reign. And so it's just completely, completely inconceivable to him that God is going to use people as brazenly evil as the Babylonians to be a part of his plan. But that's because the real problem wasn't what Habakkuk expected it was. And this is where the rubber meets the road, and it's where we're going to pick things up this morning. We're going to start in uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, and you can read along with me in your Bibles. Uh, Habakkuk is kind of like in the middle to the right a little ways. He's wedged in there between uh, Nahum and Zephaniah. Um, So it's also in your bulletins, or you just listen along while I read from Habakkuk 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. So Habakkuk cries out to God, God says, I'm sending the Babylonians to deal with this, and he cries out to God again. And in response to Habakkuk's second complaint, God says this. He says, write this down. This is important. I want you to know, I want everybody to know, that everything will be set to right. It is going to happen. Mark my words. It might take a long time, but it's going to happen. Babylon will be brought down, and then throughout the rest of chapter 2, what we get is God enumerating all the ways that the evil things the Babylonians do are going to be turned against them and used to destroy them. But did you happen to catch in verse 4 what God says is at the root of all this? They put it a little differently in the New Living Translation. For verse 4, here's, what they, here's what, how they, they, they write it. Look at the proud... They trust in themselves, and their lives are crooked. When Habakkuk looked around, what he saw were the problematic behaviors of of Jehoiakim and of the Babylonians. But when God surveyed the situation, what he saw weren't just the behaviors, but the problematic hearts of those who were committing these behaviors. The evil, the violence, the injustice that Habakkuk was crying out about, it was the pride of these people, and it was ratcheted up to pandemic levels. Habakkuk wanted God to treat all the symptoms while God is getting ready to eradicate the disease. If you were to read through the whole book of Habakkuk and you see all these evil things that these people are doing, it'd be real easy to look at it and say, yeah, you know what? These people were the worst. Habakkuk is right. And then when you hear that the root of their bad actions is pride, you're like, yeah, I get that. I can, see, I can see why that would be the case. But have you considered what pride is at its core? When it comes down to it, pride is actually faith. 
but it's faith that's been distorted. It's faith that's been put in the wrong things. It's faith that trusts not in God, but in one's own self, one's abilities, one's goodness, one's fitness to judge right from wrong, and even one's ability to keep the law, rather than putting it the faith in the one who is worthy of that faith. C.S. Lewis wrote frequently about pride. In mere Christianity alone, he described pride in many ways. He described it as the source of other sins. He described it as spiritual cancer, the complete anti-God state of mind, the cause that made the devil become the devil, and the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Think about that one. The chief cause of misery in every nation and family since the world began. Isn't that the story of Cain and Abel? You know, Cain can't accept that his offering doesn't measure up. His pride in what he had done, he, he can't accept that it wasn't good enough. And so he murders his brother Abel. Isn't it also the story of the prodigal son? He goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have your money and go live how I want. Give it to me. I know what I want to do with my life. And so he does it. He takes the money, he goes off, and he lives however he wants to live, and it takes him crashing down to the place where he is slopping food to pigs to try to eke out a meager living and thinking, man, if I could just eat what the pigs ate, that'd be great. In that moment, he realizes, I should just go home. I was wrong. I messed this up. I can go home and be the least of my father's servants and do better than I'm doing right now. Isn't it also the story of his brother who, after the prodigal son comes home, the fact that the dad welcomes him back in is so self-righteously proud that he won't be a part of that celebration? Isn't it also the story of our own relationships? How often do we allow our pride, perhaps in the form of having to always be right, being unwilling to admit when we're wrong, being unwilling to say sorry, how often do we allow that to drive a wedge between us and our spouse or us and our parents or us and our friends? Do any of you remember the TV show from the 90s? It was a big hit show. It was called uh, Home Improvement. Yeah, that was appointment television in my house growing up. And, and for those of you who uh, haven't existed in a world where there wasn't DVR, appointment television was a thing that we had because if you missed the show when it was on, you didn't know when you were going to get to see it again. It'd be on in reruns at some point, but who knew when that would be. And so this was one of those TV shows for my family. During its eight-year run, we were on the couch ready when that show started every week. Now, this was one of these shows that, that was a huge cultural icon, and, and it was very, very big deal in its time. And it starred Tim Allen as Tim the Toolman, Taylor, and for 204 episodes over eight seasons, the plot remained essentially unchanged in every single episode. Tim, thinking that he knew better, thinking that he had it right, thinking he had it all figured out, not willing to listen to anyone else in his pride, would do something questionable. Things would oftentimes quite literally blow up in his face, and then the rest of the episode was spent trying to undo whatever it was that had gone wrong, trying to fix the damage that he had done because his pride was too big to listen to someone else. When we look around, we see a world full of Tim Taylors. 
without ever looking in the mirror and realizing that we're Tim too. Pride is an insidious internal infection and we're all carriers. The reality is that while we're highlighting the faults of others in our mind or out loud, we excuse our own. And that's to say nothing of the fact that we are constantly tempted to derive our sense of, of, of moral uprightness by looking at the person next to us and thinking, I got things better than he is, so I must be good. Like, like somehow that's the standard. If pride is an insidious internal infection and we're all carriers, then, then what is the antidote? In Habakkuk 2.4, the contrast that God holds up against the puffed up, against the proud, is the righteous person who lives by his or her faithfulness. So what does that mean exactly? What does righteousness mean? Well, righteousness is actually like a legal definition in the Old Testament. It meant this. It meant having the right standing before God and before man. And it's impossible to achieve if you're proud. Because for the proud person, their pride causes them to put their faith in the wrong thing. The righteous ones, we're told, are the ones who live by faithfulness to the right thing. And so the question becomes, what does it look like to live by faithfulness? Does it look like trusting in God for salvation? Does it look like following God's will for our lives? Does it look like remaining faithful and true to the Lord even when things are hard? I think it's all three of those things. I think it means trusting in Jesus for salvation because in order for faithfulness to have any meaning in our lives, we first have to accept the offer of salvation through Jesus. Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted three times in the New Testament. Twice, twice it's quoted by Paul in, in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.17. And both times that Paul uses this scripture, what he has in mind is the fact that faith is us responding to the offer of salvation as, as the means of becoming righteous rather than trying to achieve righteousness on our own. And if you think that Christianity is about being good and getting everything right, that's not it. But to be fair, as Christians, we haven't always done a great job of explaining what Christianity is about. Far too often we have communicated through our actions and through what we hold up that it is about doing all the things right and, and, and being good in and, and all of those ways. But here's what Christianity is actually about. It's about grace. And grace means that even though you didn't deserve it and you didn't earn it, God sent his son to pay the price for all the sins you have ever committed and all the sins you ever will commit so that you could be counted righteous. So you could enter into the kingdom of God and have a relationship with him. Grace means that there's no secrets from God, that he knows everything there is to know about you and chooses to love you anyway. Since you can't earn it, grace is a gift. But grace is a hard gift to accept. Because accepting grace means admitting that you have been wrong and that you can't do it all on your own, that you can't be the ultimate judge of right and wrong, that you can't earn your way to the kingdom of God on your own. The only way to become righteous is to live by faith. And to do that, it starts by accepting the gift of grace extended through Jesus' death on the cross. And once we've put our faith in him, our call is to live faithfully day by day. And in order to do that, we've got to be continually turning our pride over to God. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on Habakkuk 2.4 titled, Pride the Destroyer. 
In that sermon, he said this. He said, is there a man in whose heart does not lurk pride? When we fancy that we have clean escaped from pride, it is only because we've lost the sense of its weight and through being surrounded with it. I can't tell you how much I wish that weren't true and how much I wish I wasn't so susceptible to it. In my pride, when that rears up in me, it comes at me like this. It says this. It says, I can work harder than anybody else. I may not look like much. I may not be the smartest. I may not be the strongest. But I will outwork anyone. The problem is, that doesn't work with God. I can't outwork him. Because I can never get it all the way right. I can't, I, I, I can't just work so hard that it excuses the things that have been done. Only grace can do that. You know, I like to call it uh, grit or having a strong work ethic, but, but if that were true, this feeling of being able to outwork anybody, uh, it, it wouldn't come with such a feeling of superiority. It's, it's pride. And here's the thing that has taken me a long time to realize. There's no extra credit to be earned. There's no bonus points that God gives out for how hard I work. He doesn't love me anymore. He doesn't offer me any more grace because I work hard. I stand at the same place and receive the same grace as everyone else. And here's the thing. As much as I sometimes wish he were, God is absolutely unimpressed by my hard work. Of the many ways that Satan attempts to separate us from God, I think pride is the hardest to fight against. Because before we believe in God, pride is at work in our heart telling us we don't need him. We got it figured out. We're good. We got it on our own. And then once we do accept Jesus as our Savior, once we become children of God, it goes to work in our hearts telling us that we're actually really good at that that we're at least better at it than, than the person next to us, because, like I said, like, yeah, we're pretending that's the standard. And at the same time as it does that, it also goes to work convincing us that we can handle things on our own. We start to believe that that piece of scripture that's not actually scripture that says God helps those who help themselves. And, and we think we got it. We can handle it. We don't engage in community to get help for things we need help with. We don't turn to God when we're hurting. We think we got it. We're good. Ultimately, we wind up where we believe in God. We still don't think we need him. Pride is insidious. It is always looking for a way in, and when it gets in, its aim is always to separate us from God. Only way to fight against it is to be continually on the lookout for it be continually turning it over to God, being on guard for giving it a foothold so that we don't try to climb back onto the throne as the God of our own lives. So the question is, where in your heart might pride be lurking? What's the thing? Where is it that you need to seek God's grace? Because we're not always going to get it right. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it was a once and for all deal because God knew that we wouldn't get it right the first time. And so in those moments when we don't get it right, when we lose the battle against our pride or other sins, all we have to do is turn back to God 
ask for his forgiveness, take the grace that he offers and try again. Living in faithfulness, it also means learning to follow God's lead. And and that means looking to God as an example of how to live a faithful, godly life. But it also means looking to God as, as a relationship. And because relationships, relationships require intimacy. You know, whether it's with, with someone like a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or something like that, like there is an intimacy that comes over time. You wouldn't marry someone that you just met and expect that your life was going to be perfect and, 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 and worry-free. You've got to get to know that person because that's how you build trust. Have you ever noticed how over time with people that you trust, sometimes just the sound of their voice, it changes things for you. When things are hard, when things are bad, when it's difficult, the sound of someone's voice can bring calm and peace. It can make you happy. It can encourage you. We've got to get that close to God. We've got to stay that close to God. We've got to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and allow it to be the thing that determines how we are feeling and how we're moving forward. Because here's, here's the thing about faithfulness. We don't have to manufacture it on our own. We don't have to work up some sort of, of, of white-knuckled faithfulness and stay true to God. That's not what he's asking. Faithfulness is a, is a characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. Our faithfulness is the outflow of God's faithfulness poured into us. On a practical level, faithfulness won't look the same for all of us. It may mean doing something new or or letting go of something old. It may mean dealing with an addiction or an attachment that you've had for some time. It may mean learning to say that you're sorry and and learning to listen to other people's ideas. It may be getting involved in in Summit's local service mission. It may mean investing in the community around you. Whatever it is, whether it's something that you do individually or, or relationally, or vocationally, over time, faithfulness is going to look like a lot of different things as your life progresses, as you, as you follow that call of God. Whatever it is, when we start to live in tune with the Holy Spirit, what we're doing is we're enabling ourselves to live faithfully to God and faithfully to who he had in mind when he thought us up. Faithfulness also means living in light of that which God has promised and, and trusting that he will keep his promise even when that's hard to believe, when things look bleak. God promised Habakkuk that the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. And then he told him, though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. That day that he's speaking of, when everything will be set right, that's the day when Jesus returns. And until then, we live in in this tension of already, but not yet. We know what the promise is, and we await it to come. And in the middle of that, things are messy, and they're hard. And things don't happen the way that we wish they would all the time. And we cry out to God, we ask him when things will be set right, and his response to us is the same as it was to Habakkuk. Help is on the way. Though it lingers, wait for it. And I will own the fact that that is hard to hear and that it's even harder to do because it is just hard to wait. It is hard to stay in it for the long haul. I was having a conversation about this this past week with Jim Keller, and and what he said is that he runs into this with clients of his in, in counseling on a pretty regular basis. They, they start counseling because they've identified something that's wrong and they want to deal with it. They want to work on it. They get a few sessions in and they start to realize it's not getting better. 
as fast as I wanted it to. And they'd face a choice at that point. They can either give up because it's not happening on their timeline, or they can dig in and stay in it until it does get better. The reality is that sometimes the only way out is through. It's not easy, but it's the only way. Every time we listen to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and respond in faith, we get to see God at work in our lives. Over time, that, that builds this, 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 this history of God's faithfulness to us every time that we do that. Now, it's a story for a different day, but there's a reason that my daughter's middle name is Faith. Remembering what God has done is crucial to faithfulness. In chapter 3, we see a different Habakkuk. The complaints are gone, and he writes a song that recounts all the ways that God has shown up throughout the history of Israel. He remembers the ways that God has proven himself to be faithful in the past, and he paints this really vivid picture of a God who conquers all. And it builds to these final three verses of the book. Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. The final words we get from Habakkuk is this resolute declaration of his faithfulness. And it's based on remembering the way God was faithful. The only way out is through. And we have no way of knowing when the deliverance will come, whether it's right around the corner or will only come in the final setting of things to right. But though it lingers, wait for it. Remember the ways that God has shown himself to be faithful to you. Remember the ways that God has shown himself to be faithful to others. The reason that we say your story told truthfully is good news is because your story is the story of God's faithfulness to you. And when you share it, your story becomes part of the story of God's faithfulness to us, his family. Your story may well be the thing that empowers someone to continue to walk forward faithfully when they feel like all hope is lost. So we don't choose when or where or to whom we're born or the trials that we're going to face. But in those trials, we do, in fact, have a choice. While it may be up to God alone to determine what faithfulness will look like for us, we have a choice about whether or not we will be faithful to the only one worthy of our faith. That was God's call to action for Habakkuk. And it's his call to action for us today as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for always being faithful to us. Thanks for making it possible for us to be made righteous so that we could uh, have a relationship with you. God, I pray that you will help us to put to death our pride. I pray that you will help us to live faithfully to you. Thanks for grace when we don't deserve it. Thanks for grace when it's our only hope. Draw us close to you, God. Teach us to hear and know your voice. 
quicken our hearts with the dreams that you have for our lives. Remind us of your faithfulness to us. Remind us of your faithfulness to your family as a whole. Pray, God, that you will empower us to be faithful to you in the hard parts that you will encourage us. Help us to find peace and even joy in the midst of our struggles. And I ask it all in the name of him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. In the name of Jesus Christ, the strong Son of God. Amen.